Thank you again for joining us for another one of our series that we're going through on this discipleship material. It's called One to One, and it was the material that Pastor Art put together and coordinated so that what we can do is help you to become more fluent with your Bible knowledge as well as uh, more emboldened to be able to do Bible studies with individuals. And so we hope that this has been helpful. We're continuing into this study. We're using the book that maybe you have in hand or if not, then make sure you check your email. We did send copies of the pages that we're going to be talking about today, but it's this booklet. If you didn't pick it up yet, please stop by church. We have several of those that are free for those of you who are part of our church ministry that you can use in discipling other individuals. We're uh, talking on chapter 7 about the church, and since today we're going to be talking about the church being a nation, I thought we would just do a little bit of fun trivia, first of all, and ask you about what we are like as Americans. And so we're going to do this a little bit of a survey. In this idea, and it comes from some national surveys done, which one is considered America's favorite food chain? McDonald's, Wendy's, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, Subway, or Burger King? Give you a few seconds to think about it. Not necessarily what's your favorite, but what do you think is America's number one? The answer is Chick-fil-A, which has been running number one for the last three years in all these different surveys. Second, question I want to ask you. Which one is America's favorite candy? Hershey bar, M&M, Snickers, Skittles, candy corn, Reese's peanut butter cup, Tootsie Roll, or Tootsie Pop? It is one of those. Which one do you think is America's favorite candy candy bar? For me, I would pick the M&M's, but that's not number one. Number one has, according to CNN polls, is Reese's peanut butter cups. Here we go. Number three. Which one is America's favorite vehicle when it comes to purchasing? Amongst Americans, which one? Dodge Ram, Toyota Corolla, Chevy Impala, Buick, LeSabre, Ford Truck, F-Series, Honda Civic, Chevy Silverado, Volkswagen Bug. Which one do you think it is? I'm sure you're guessing. Here's the number one. Per the USA Today, it's the Ford F-Truck Series, which again has been holding that spot for the last few years. Another question for you. Which one is considered America's favorite food? In all the surveys done, which one do people say that if they had to choose one of these foods that they would eat quite often, which one do you think it is? Pizza, hamburger, steak, ice cream, tacos, pasta, or barbecue chicken? The number one answer is pizza, according to ReadersDigest.com. Then I'm going to ask you this one, okay? There are surveys that are done of foreigners who come to a visit in America, and they have contributed what they think is strange or odd about American culture or Americans as a whole. And so there's a listing of usually about 16, 17 in this survey that are on several different websites. But I'm going to ask you if you think this is one of the topics that they said or one of the subjects they said is odd about Americans and or America in general. And your answer would be yes or no. Is this what many of the foreigners think about Americans? That we are odd in that we tip servers in our restaurants? Yes or no? Is that something foreigners find odd? The answer is yes. It's one of the top comments that the foreigners made about America, that in a lot of those foreign countries, they don't even do tipping whatsoever. We like ice in our water. Well, if you are here last week listening to some of the messages that we shared, made it very clear that that's an absolute yes. Most overseas folk, when they come, they find it very odd that we would put ice in, and they don't serve it in their restaurants with ice. We sing a lot. We go around singing an awful lot. 
Do you think they said that is one of the peculiarities of Americans or not? The answer is it is not in their survey at all. Never brought up in any of those surveys that give you a variety of options. We say, how are you a lot? The answer to that was absolutely yes. And a lot of foreigners said that they were put off by that because we use it as a greeting. Their initial response is they want to answer and give us information. We go out in public, dress down. What do you think? Yes or no? That, again, is a yes. In fact, in their comments on that, they said they couldn't believe how many Americans go to stores like Walmart in pajamas. We wear our shoes inside the house. That, too, is another yes. In most foreign countries, shoes are parked right by the door. We take shorter vacations than many of the peoples around the world. That, again, is a yes. A lot of countries, they get a month's worth of vacation every year, if not a little bit more. And then this one, we display our flag, we display our flag an awful lot. That was one of the top answers that they said, that as Americans, we are very patriotic, very pro-America. We put flags everywhere, and they commented that they see flags on hats, on, short, on shirts, flying. They even see shorts made out of flags, and they see it all over. And in their countries, they said that is not something that is often displayed. And their point is, Americans are almost over the top when it comes to being excited about their country. Well, we're talking about the church being a country for us as we get into one of the passages today. And so we're going to be talking about that with the idea of being excited, being enthusiastic about our citizenship that is in heaven. As we get started this morning, why don't you, or this day, why don't you join me? And we're going to be in that idea of connecting people together, walking through somebody that you pick that you can disciple you can do a bible study with you're sharing the gospel with you're praying about but as you go through the materials you're coming up to chapter seven chapter seven in this workbook is about the local church and so i'm taking a little bit longer time with this chapter than the others but i think it's because i want to make sure that you understand the importance of the church and as well in our culture it is almost being diminished and in our covid situation i fear that it's going to be even more diminished in the days ahead for some people. And so what we've been talking about when we come to the church is just give you a little bit of that background information. It's the word that shows up in the original language, ecclesia, called out ones, peoples who are called out to do God's business. Now we've commented about this, and let me rehearse it one more time. When you go through the New Testament, you will find ecclesia or the translation church showing up with a couple different possibilities of what it's referring to. It could be referring to the universal church, or it could be referring to a local church or local churches. When we talk about the universal church, we've already made this comment a couple times, it's the macrocosm, the big entity that is all of God's family. And then we said as well that the smaller one, the visible church, is a microcosm, a picture of it. But the universal church, it is invisible. The local church, it is visible. It is something that people can see when it's gathered. To develop that a little bit further, let me talk a little bit about the universal church. And again, give you a little bit of some of the different teachings that some are giving so that you best understand this and know that when you're dealing with individuals who are of a different church background, you may know where they're coming from. The universal church is that idea that there are all the saved people who have gotten saved from Pentecost all the way to the rapture. It is not limited to any denominational group, though you will find some people that say that it is only the 
whatever they may say, the Catholics or the Baptists or the Methodists, whatever their preference is, and say they're the only ones who belong to it, in the doctrinal teaching of the universal family of God, that all who are born again, it doesn't make any difference about a denomination or an association. It's what is their relationship to Jesus Christ. It should prompt that, I, that, that idea that we have brothers and sisters around the world should prompt concern and care between believers in different regions, such as we do with the idea that we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that need assistance at times, they need help, they need some prayer support, they need some materials. And so all of this combination of this universal idea, we understand and we appreciate and we say that that, that is a concept in scriptures that we have brothers and sisters around the world. But there are some things that the New Testament talks about that the universal church cannot do. The universal church has never met together, and on, and nor can it. How can we all meet for a single service, though we are told not to forsake the assembly? What assembly is it talking about in that text? It can't be the universal church. There are no universal pastors, even though some people in some denominations who created a hierarchy, they base that on this idea that there's a universal church. There's one pastor. You can call him Papa Pope. You can call him whatever, an archbishop or whatever terms that they want to use. But the uh, idea in scriptures is there is no universal pastor. The pastors are chosen for individual flocks, not the universal body of Christ. There are no universal deacons that are selected by the whole body. They can't, we can't, with all our brothers and sisters around the world, we can't come together to do a communion service. And yet in 1 Corinthians, we're supposed to do it regularly with the family that we're in. We uh, would notice that according to Matthew 18, which talks about confronting somebody, and if they don't respond two or three, and then tell it to the church, you can't do that when you talk about the universal church. You can't kick them out of a relationship with Christ, and what do you kick them out of if you're trying to recover them and let them see the importance of, the, uh, of being right with Christ. And so some of these ideas... Like in First Timothy, it talks about taking the widows in the roster or the keeping a record of them. There's no universal roster or membership that records who are widows and who aren't when it comes to the universal church. So with that in mind, when some of those passages talk about church, they cannot be talking about the universal concept. But rather what they are talking about, and as we've pointed out the last few weeks, 95%. That is what scholars say. At least 95% of the references of ecclesia and church in the New Testament are referring to some local entity. Someone that might be in a town like Sancria or Antioch or Corinth or a group of local entities spread out through Galatia. And so we know that a lot of the New Testament, they talk and they wrote, they spoke of local churches. And that is the predominant reference of church and the idea when we come into the New Testament. Now, going back to what we were just saying, by comparison, local churches, that's consisting of those who are saved and those who have followed the Lord and believers' baptism, yoked up together to do God's business. We would say the local church can meet regularly together as commanded by Scripture. They can select their pastor or pastors according to all the qualifications given in the pastoral epistles. They can, like the book of Acts, select from amongst themselves deacons. The 
local churches can do communion together as often as they do uh, decide to do the communion service. Local churches can practice the disciple, the recovery program of Matthew 18 by confronting and then encouraging and if need be, tell it to the church, a local church body who they then can try to um, assist in recovering that individual, praying for that individual who is one walking away from the Lord. We know this as well. They do in local churches. They can have a roster of listing of the widows within their assembly of believers with whom they can minister, they can provide finances. They can send out missionaries who go out and start other local churches as portrayed in the book of Acts. They can teach in a service with a common tongue and cultural background a lot of the principles. And especially since the gift of tongues has passed away, this idea of having local assemblies where we can speak the same tongue and talk about the the culture in which we live in. Local church is the New Testament concept that is highly promoted. And so we've been talking about this church concept, and I've asked you a couple times, make sure you write this down. If you're describing the church, the simple definition of church is this, an organized assembly of born-again, baptized believers who are united to Christ and voluntarily unite together with one another in order to do God's business according to God's word. Such a simple but a very powerful definition of the church. And again, make sure that the individual that you're talking with or the family or the couple that you're dealing with, make sure they understand church. That the, the preponderance of verses in the New Testament speak about local church concept. Local church, born-again people, baptized who are doing God's business, united around the Word of God. Very, very, very important concepts. And so we've been developing this whole idea that in the New Testament, Jesus and the disciples use other descriptive terms. They use some commonly known uh, examples, illustrations, to give us more of an insight of what the church is supposed to be about. And so we've looked at a number of those already. And some of them that we have mentioned include Christ's body, the body of Christ. It is the one that is used most frequently, and it is talking about, you remember the passages about our bodies having many members, so too our church body has many members, the family of God. We've talked about the flock and looked at that. In your notes, you can see about the building that Jesus Christ is talking about, the bride of Christ. And again, the complete bride, the macrocosm of the bride is going to be everyone who is saved, but we, in a small way, we picture the bride of Jesus Christ. We've talked about last week, we ended up with the army, Christ's army. And again, I just want to remind you, for those of you who just didn't catch that all, there isn't a singular verse or phrase that talks about us being called an army, but there are multiple verses that imply this, that give the idea that we are in warfare and that we are chosen to be soldiers. The idea that we are fighting a good fight. The idea that our weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of this world, but rather they are spiritual weapons. In Ephesians 6, where he talks about that we wrestle not against um, principalities and powers of this world, but rather the, the idea of not the flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers in the spiritual world and wherefore we're supposed to take the whole armor of God. All of that together gets us to that idea that we are an army. 
warriors for Christ. But let's develop a little one, a, a little bit more, another idea. But before I do that, let me just pause and say, okay, those things that we've already mentioned, what do they have in common? What do they all talk about? Well, some, and this is, this is something you may want to point out, some appear to be very docile, very passive, while others you know, are with that idea of being aggressive, an army opposed to a sheep. And so he's giving us all different ideas from the broad spectrum of what we're supposed to be like. Some portray a living organism, like the body. Another, like a building, gives us the idea that this organism has structured organization. They all seem to stress, though, that whole idea of a relationship to Christ as well as others. The bride, his body, the one that we're joined together, that we are an army together and he's our leader. And so, in all of those pictures, there is the idea that Christ is leading, we're working together, and we're to make some type of contribution to this entity called the local church. But the important ones that I want to stress is, he is saying in all these pictures, the importance of being part of a group. Not being independent. One soldier doesn't make up an army, nor does one brick make a building, nor does one member of our body make a body. The one sheep doesn't make a whole flock. We need a body. We need to have that affiliation, association with other believers called the local church. And it seems to me that they all picture the idea of a long-term commitment, the bride, a building that is there for a long time, an army that he says we're not supposed to be like civilians, but we're supposed to always be prepared for the battle. And so those ideas of long-term commitment seem to be underlying with this whole picture of the local church. But most important, the necessity of Christ being in charge. There is to be one ultimate shepherd, one general, one head of the body, one head in the family of Jesus Christ between he and his bride. All of that put together gives us some of those concepts that we want to develop a little bit more with some other terms that are very quickly mentioned in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we even saw this last week when we read part of it, when I talked about the building. But he did say that we are God's husbandry. We are God's field. We are his farmland. And when we think about that idea, it's the picture clearly gives us the impression that there is a necessity for laborers within the field to be working, to be laboring in that area, as well as the idea that we are depending upon God to produce the harvest. That seems to be the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, let's pick up the context of it. They are arguing over who's following, what favorite teacher. And he makes this comment in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? They're but ministers. They're servants by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I've planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then there is neither he that plants anything, neither he that watereth, but it's God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters, they're one. They're working as a team. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God because we are God's field. Uh, let, me, let me just remind you, farmers today as well as back then, certain facts about those farmers, he's got to labor in his field. He's got to labor if he wants to have a good fruit. It just doesn't happen automatically just by owning the land and saying, I hope I get a corn crop. There has to be some work. In fact, he must do all he can to prep, 
to be able to get water there if there's irrigation needs, to fertilize, to do what he can do as far as allowing that land to produce the crop that he has chosen. He must do the planting of a good seed so that he gets whatever that crop that he wants, what it's desired, you know, what he desires. And then we make this comment, he is, after he does all of his work, very dependent upon the Lord, totally relying upon the Lord to provide the rain that's needed, the sunshine that's needed, the warm weather, to protect from plagues, to protect from storms, to protect from what other disasters might ruin the crop. Now that's what a farmer does. And so keeping that in mind, we're in this text now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we've read the verses, and our notes ask us what lesson about growing can be drawn from this text that describes the church as a field. Now you may think about it and may want to take a moment, put me on pause and then come back and get some ideas that you write down and then make a comparison with what I have considering how come he uses this picture of the church being a field. Here's what I had. I had these ideas. The church is a field, a place where growing fruit is expected. It's supposed to be happening. It takes a lot of human work to see this growth come about and reach a final harvest. There's activity. There's got to be some human effort, farm effort being taken. Different people, like in a farm that's large, different, multiple different people had different chores. So too different people have different jobs in God's field. As he said, that he says that he's planted, Apollos is watered. Different people did different jobs to bring about the harvest. All these jobs are vital and important for the production of the fruit. We make this observation. The laborers must work together. They have to be having some type of plan that they are laboring and not overlapping their jobs but working together at their respective jobs doing them at the time appointed taking care of their responsibilities although we contribute and we do all we can we all we know that we have to trust in the lord that as god is in charge he's the one who ultimately produces the finished product and it's mentioned a couple times as i already read god gave the increase He makes it very clear. It's the Lord that giveth the increase uh, to every man, stated twice in this text. And we make this observation, even though God produces the growth, even though he's the one that's ultimately the one behind the production, he's going to reward all those who contribute by doing their parts. This text comes right before that whole passage that talks about the Bema seat and the rewards given. What you do to contribute to this field is going to have great impact on some of the rewards or lack of rewards that you will receive from Jesus Christ. Your involvement in local church is highly, highly important for even your eternal status when it comes to what rewards, what crowns you'll be given. Let's, give a, let's wrap this one up by giving a little bit of thought. I've challenged you on each one of these ideas. Come up with a single word or phrase that you want that, to share with the individual that the, the idea... The picture, the parallel he's giving. What does it stress to you? Now, you may have already written down some, or you're thinking through in your mind. Let me give you a couple that come to mind that you can pick or you can develop yourself. Idea of God being, God saying the church is a field, there's obviously intended growth. There's the idea of you've got to have the right seed. And we know in the Word of God, that's the Word of God is used as a picture of the seed. There's got to be a harvesting. There's got to be some plan that there's going to be a time when we're going to rally and reap the fruit. There's got to be, as we said, 
the planting of the seed, there's got to be teamwork, that we're working together in giving our efforts, and there's got to be a trusting in the Lord. Now, those are some of the few thoughts that I would, would, would put down in this light and just highlight that with the individual, but you may have some better ones. If you do, make sure you share them with me that I may be able to use them in future teaching spots. Let's pick up a new idea, another one. He says that the church is the pillar and ground of truth. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he's talking about how you ought to behave in the church. He's given the qualifications of pastors and deacons, and then he says, because the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And when we look at that, I want to just make sure you understand fully the wording, the phrasing, you may want to mark this in your Bible as well as in your notes, that when we talk about the ground, the word there that's used for ground can stand and is often giving the impression of support. Some might say foundation, though that is not the typical translation for the word that is given here, but rather the idea of support, bolstering, buttressing. It's, it's that idea of, of giving additional support to the pillar is really the idea. And so when we think about this, before we go any further, I want to ask you this question. I ask you to pause and, and give it some thought. What is the purpose for a pillar? Why would we put pillars in buildings? In old days, they did it. You know, on the outside is pictured here. We've got pillars in our building. We have them inset into the wall. There's spots in this auditorium where they stand out, such as even right behind me on this auditorium wall uh, where the choir comes in. Those are pillars. What are they there for? Well, when we think of the basic need for a pillar, it's to hold up the structure, to give it strength, to give it stability, the idea of holding up the roof, helping to hold up the walls. But in ancient days, there would be a secondary purpose for the pillar, and that would to impress people to be able to draw their attention to this facility, some factor in the facility. For instance, when we went and visited in Colonial Williamsburg, when we walk in the governor's house, there is a whole display of weapons that are from that day, and they're on the wall, and that was all designed to be impressive of anybody who walked in the, into the, that room. If it be some group coming from the American natives to talk about a treaty, they would be impressed that there's power here with all those weapons. Well, so two pillars were often designed. They were not just a structure, had a structural function, but also had an impressing function to, to uh, put out art, to draw attention to, to show, to show um, that we are massive, that we're big. Now, taking those two ideas, okay, that that is from the ancient world, that it is you know, holding up the structure, it is also trying to impress. Then we have to ask ourselves this question, okay? Or make a statement, ask a question. Clearly the church is to draw attention to and to hold up the truth. Well, that leads to the question that I've alluded to. What is the truth? The pillar in the ground of truth. Well, what are we talking about here? You and I both know that there's two possibilities. The truth could be referring to the living word, where Jesus says, I am the way, the light, the truth. Or it could be referring to the written word, the Bible, which is the truth. And so taking that concept, okay, that, what does that mean for us today? Okay, if we're as a church supposed to be a pillar and support of the truth, how does that play out? The idea is the church is to uphold the word of God. 
as well as the church is to uphold Jesus Christ. We are to magnify him. We are to manifest him. As well, we're to draw attention to him. We're to draw attention to the word of God. Not some type of activity uh, or entertainment that we might do, but rather, let's make sure we're pointing people to the word of God. We can use other items to help draw some attention, but let's make sure that they focus on Christ and his word. This is to be done before the world. We're not to be ashamed. We're to be holding it up and not being embarrassed by the word of God. This is to be done before one another, holding up the word of God. So as by example and by encouragement, we, we say to one another, I exhort you to hold up Jesus Christ, to hold up to the truth of the word of God. It's to be done regularly, on a regular basis, all the time. When do we need to take away this pillar in the ground of the truth? We don't. We're, we were that as a, as a church entity back in the days of Christ. We are still to be the pillar and the ground, the buttressing of the, of the truth always. This requires group effort for us to work together to hold it up that we are exalting Christ and holding up his word. And so when you think about that idea of a pillar, that which is supporting the truth of God, okay, what, what single thought comes to mind? What idea that you want to share? Again, I'm going to share with you what I have, and you can pause and write your thoughts down first of all, but let me just move on. It means that we've got to be believing in this. It's implied. It's, it's assumed. We're believing in the Word of God. It's implying loyalty. Loyalty to the Word of God. That we're, we're not going to be ashamed of. Loyalty to Jesus Christ. It means that we are unashamed of the Bible and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd put the word focus this is the thing we're to be focusing on and lifting up. Not a person, not a, not a particular uh, group of people, not a building, but rather our Lord and his word. So we have those different pictures, those different concepts. But there's one more that we want to add. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to the passage that's listed here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is that idea of we are a nation. We are a nation in 1 Peter chapter 2. Before, while you're turning there, let me point out a couple other verses that give this same concept. Therefore, he says, we are, or you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Now, your notes have some blanks. I'm going to fill them in with some explanation. Notes, keep this in mind. This teaches you are no longer strangers. In our modern uh, terminology, we would say and understand it better. We are no longer illegal aliens and foreigners, those who have come and legally done the process, but they are from a foreign country and they're just kind of transplanted here. But we are now true citizens from beginning on. The idea that we are fully of that, of that nation of Christ. The idea is that none of us are homeless. None of us are with, uh, like a man without a country. Now, all of us have a new kingdom citizenship when we get born again. We have a new home beyond the one that we're living in in this world. We have a new country. We have a new citizenship. And it's not in this world, but it's in heavenly places in that kingdom of God. All of us are united together, not only as a nation, but then it's even tied together. We're family. We're bound by 
by our loyalty to Christ, by what he has done as fellow citizens in his kingdom, but also we are brothers and sisters. And then we make this additional thought. In this context where he makes a statement, he is dealing with the division in the church that comes because two different ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so keeping this in mind in that context, he's stressing equality, that we're all saints and we are all part of the family of God. Therefore, and included in those days, Gentiles and the Jews, which again, you have to remember, there was, there was tremendous angst between those different groups, especially on the part of the Jews. And he's rebuking them and saying, uh-uh, all who are born again, they're brothers and sisters. All who are born again, they're part of the nation of God. Not just you who are the Jews, but all of them who are put together are now part of this new citizenry of this new kingdom. So in the local church, there is to be no prejudice. What a topic for us to be just touching on today in light of all that's happening within our country at this time. That you and I need to remember that as believers, there should be no division because of color or because of language or, or backgrounds. But we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and ought to treat one another so. We go a little bit further about another passage that we preached on just a few weeks ago. It's from Colossians, who has delivered us, talking about Jesus Christ, from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Question, to what kingdom did you belong before salvation? Quick answer, the kingdom of darkness. Question, after being delivered, you were translated. Remember, we illustrated when we were in that text, the idea of we were beamed away, that we were really physically moved. We were moved from the realm of darkness into the kingdom. And so he makes the comment that reservation into the son's kingdom is absolute. The verbiage tense is past. It happened in the past. And as a result, it's an absolute certainty. Now we're into that text that I wanted you to return to. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read, and then let's make our answers here. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not attained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, in this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, while having your conversation honest amongst the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In light of the fact that we are God's holy nation, how should we conduct ourselves according to verse 9? How do you want to answer that? Here's what I put down. We should show forth his praises. Do you remember we talked about a lot of the people in the, in the foreign countries that talk or come to America or have interaction with Americans? They said one of the things that really characterized them is this whole waving the flag idea. Very patriotic, very pro-American, wearing it on our sleeves. We should have that same enthusiasm for the kingdom of God. That we should not be embarrassed and we should be proud that we are part of God's holy nation. That we have a citizenry in heaven. As a result, according to verse 11, that means that as citizens of heaven, we should abstain from the fleshly lusts of this world, which characterize this world and the citizens of this world. According to verse 12, we should, by contrast, in our daily lifestyle, our conversation that we read about, we should be honest, 
We should be displaying good works that are manifest before the world so that those who see our good works, our faith, our, our loyalty to God Almighty, they might be drawn into a relationship and as a result glorify God in the day of visitation. And so this is an impacting verse that talks about what we're going to be looking towards and hoping for. Now all these terms put together, they indicate that in this, in this study that the church, you and I, as part of this body, we are very special to Jesus Christ. And let's add this, it is an honor and a privilege to be part of a church. It's not a chore, it's not an imposition. It is an honor to be a part of that organization that Jesus Christ calls his bride, his flock, his army, his nation. All those different terms that should, should help us to swell up with pride and enthusiasm to be a part of a church and to contribute to it. Now, well, that's all about the description. Let's go into another section briefly. The activities of the church. You're in your notes and you're looking at it. And according to your notes, we're going to be talking about, as we've said already, description, what we are, who we are. Now we're going to be talking about what a church does. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the key verse that your notes are going to be looking at. And according to that passage, just a real quick snippet describing what happened in the New Testament in the very earliest days of the church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now you look at it and there are four different activities that the church was really involved in in the very early days. And then as you go through the rest of Acts and go through the rest of the epistles, all these activities are promoted and encouraged to be be parts of ongoing church activity. And we say, what were they? Well, number one, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. So we think to ourselves, okay, what does that mean? It means that they continued in the study and the proclamation of God's word. That they were actively involved in learning and then giving out the word of God. How do we do that today? How do we make sure that we are continuing in the apostles' doctrine? Well, there are several possibilities. And practical ways we can do that. We study our Bible. When we get together, we take time for that. When we're, when we're in group settings, we preach. And we make that to be a major part of our gatherings, of our fellowship when we come for worship. We hold fast to correct doctrine. We point out error. We promote solid teaching of the Word of God. As well, we as a group should facilitate, help people out. We should be able to encourage individuals, learn the Word of God. Here's a tool you can use. Here's a devotional you can use. Here's a Bible study booklet that can help you out. All of that with the idea of, okay, let's continue in the Apostles' Doctrine. Learning the Word of God so we can then give it out. Then we want to point out this observation. You may want to add this in your notes. As you go through Acts chapter 2, the very first idea mentioned, activity of the church, had to do with Bible study, Bible teaching, Bible preaching. Therefore, we need to make sure that the Bible is our primary and central activity, the study, the preaching. doesn't mean every service has to be only that, but the idea is that overall our ministries, the Bible should be our focus. It should be what we are lifting up, what we are teaching individuals, that we are giving out the Word of God because that is going to make the difference in their lives. So we go to that second idea. He says that they continued in the apostles' fellowship. Fellowship. 
The fellowship here is that idea, that word that's used here, is to have things in common. Sometimes it's translated in some of your texts as participating together. It's the idea of working together, being together, enjoying something together, sharing with one another. And so there are several verses that are in your notebook that are talking and asking you, how was this played out according to these verses? Before you do that, I would do this. Okay, This is my personal opinion. I would want to just stress with the person that I'm studying before jumping into a couple of those verses. I would remind them of just this whole concept and spend a little bit more time and even maybe if the time allows point out verses that talk and give you more of this koinonia idea, this fellowship idea before getting into some of those that are mentioned in the book. For instance, I'd want them to understand that the same word, koinonia, the apostles extended to me this right hand of fellowship. There was this idea of getting together and, and accepting, receiving one another. He says that we are called of God into the fellowship together. That is something that God wants in our life, that we are, he has called us to, that we enjoy one another's fellowship, company, um, participation with. Philippians talks about this way. If there is any fellowship, any participation in the spirit, then we are to be like-minded in the same, having the same love, this being of one accord of the same mind. That idea of fellowship is that we are not supposed to have divisions. We're not supposed to have cliques. We're not supposed to have um, different groups in the sense that have nothing to do with one another. But we're supposed to be loving, gracious, working together, and of the same mindset in trying to accomplish the goals of giving out God's word. But to do good and to communicate. There's that same word that shows up, that idea of sharing together. Forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Important verse. God is pleased when you sacrifice in a form of fellowship. There's another idea that comes in the New Testament, he says, I beseech you, brethren. Even this verse doesn't use the, the exact word koinonia, but the idea that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. So I would want to rehearse those ideas that this is the foundation idea of fellowship. That would lead into the verses in your book that says, okay, how did it work out in Romans chapter 15? For it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to, have, to make a certain contribution. That word there is koinonia. That idea for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. What's he talking about? How does koinonia look in this verse at that time? Well, the New Testament fellowship was practiced between people of different areas and different backgrounds. And in the sense that they had charitable giving of physical uh, assistance, financial assistance, to help one another out. And so fellowship could include even the idea of doing something physically for somebody else. Here's another one that shows up. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. What's he stressing there? He's giving us the idea that there was, in the New Testament, Koinonia did have the idea of personal interaction with other people. Paul had personally interacted with the individuals there in Philippi in the past. And it happened between people of various backgrounds. Remember. And some of those people were wealthy, some were slaves, some were ladies, some were men, some were children, some were older. Paul had a Jewish background. He's talking to Gentiles. Paul is talking that no matter what our background, 
No matter what our status in society, hey, we enjoyed fellowship with one another. In fact, what I want to be reminding myself is this. In the New Testament, fellowship happened between the apostle and common folk. There shouldn't be a division between the clergy and the people within the church. They should be interacting one with another and have that sharing with one another. The gospel was the catalyst. It was the source. It was the foundation for that fellowship because we have a common belief in Jesus Christ. This fellowship includes prayer support. He talks about, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He's talking in that sense that when I think of you, I'm praying for you. And I am praying thanksgiving for your fellowship. Prayer support is involved with fellowship with other people. As well, positively thinking about another individual is involved in fellowship. I give thanks upon every remembrance of you. So Paul wasn't holding on to the things that were quirky, things that were bothersome, but rather he's thinking about these people in a positive sense. Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, Again, you're going to be teaching this to an individual and I kept on struggling. How do I want to explain this verse to a new convert? And I kind of concluded this, what I would do. New Testament believers weren't given to self-mutilation or asceticism. But they did not make personal comfort their ultimate end and goal. They were willing to suffer. They were willing to go through trials and without getting upset. But if it was a trial or a trouble that came because of their Christianity, so be it. And that, and Paul is saying, no matter what trouble or trial I have in Christianity, even if it's suffering, I'm doing this. He says, for the cause of Christ, and that's okay, which leads to this. New Testament believers were open to experiencing those things, including rejection, so that they could get to know Christ better. That's his goal, that I may know him. And understand his his spirit of sacrifice, his reliance upon the Lord, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to make this, this other point. Paul craved fellowship with Christ. He, he, to him, that was the most important. Even above fellowship with other people, it was, what's his walk with Christ like? How's it going with Jesus Christ? And so that intimate fellowship with Christ, it is possible, and it is something you can have. You could come here, and you can have fellowship with others, and that's great, that's grand, but what is your fellowship with Jesus Christ? That should be, that should be the one that we're most concerned about to get to know him better. As we go on through that passage of Acts, they had a third activity. It was the breaking of bread, and it would include, it could include, some have said breaking bread, hospitality, but most Bible scholars think it's reference to communion service. And so we've already talked about that and point out that history indicates that communion was something that was frequently held by the church, and we pointed out already that communion is fellowship with Christ, with other people, that it is something for which we are to give thanks, and it is something that we take very seriously. That was our whole study in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But then there was the fourth activity, and that's in prayers. That they continued in prayers. We did this again, another book, another chapter, or the same book, another chapter. But they were given to prayer. Here it says, steadfastly in prayer, which means something that they all did on a regular basis, whether in private or in a group, they were focused on praying. So we have these activities that are listed here in this text. Now, some of you may be asking, what about evangelism? Why isn't it mentioned? 
Okay, evangelism is important. But let me just make a comment, and we'll build upon this later. Even though in the early church, the lost were in some of their services, and concern was to be taken how they conducted themselves, lest they come in the service and say that you're barbarians, lest they get turned off by your message, by the way you're conducting yourself with the gifts of tongues, etc. He says, okay, they may be there. But the point is, the fellowship times of the saints did not focus mostly on evangelism. In the New Testament, the believers' gatherings were primarily for worship by an edification of the saints, not the evangelism of the lost. The author is trying to stress this idea that in our modern American culture, we are, being, we are almost shifting church worship, church uh, function away from feeding saints, building the saints, and making it all about the lost people. What we do with music, what we do with times of service, or what we do with simplicity of Bible study, and keeping everything very basic. We want to reach the world, the world, the world. That's true. We want to reach the world. But when we gather, we want to be making sure we're feeding the flock. When we gather, we want to make sure we're building up the saints, that we're helping one another to grow. We don't ignore the lost, but we should not let... The world, the lost, dictate what we do in our worship. It shouldn't be what, what they would like, it's what God likes. It shouldn't be about what would interest them, it should be what benefits us. Because when we're revived, when we're fed, we will go out and share the word of God. In fact, as one person put it, the church gathers for worship, but it scatters for evangelism. And that needs to be something that's involved in our lives every day. Getting out the Word of God. Getting out the Word of God. Getting out the Word of God. I've been challenged here in the last few weeks uh, being sick and then recovering. How do I get more involved with trying to give out the gospel? One of the things I've been practicing, and it's made a difference in my mind, my spirit, is as I go into a store now, as I walk through, do my daily walk, I pray for people I'll see on the porch. I'll pray for that person at the cash register. And take the opportunity to pray for them so that my spirit remains tender towards those individuals. And that has created, in the last couple of weeks, a couple of opportunities by which I've been able to engage in conversations with individuals talk about the interests, talk about something that with one of the neighbors, what they have needs and pray for them and start giving out the gospel and telling, well, here's what we believe. Here's what our church teaches. When we get up, here's what I speak about. I would challenge you to make sure we do not forget about the lost while we're building up our own spirit. Trust the Lord continues to work in your heart. I want to thank you for joining us. Trust you'll have a great week. God bless you. Keep on serving Christ.